0: Welcome to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Eric Rivenis, and I appreciate you staying subscribed. This podcast continues now and in the future, and I appreciate you sticking with me. I do have more episodes in the works for the rest of 2022. So let's get to the interview. I am so excited to have as my guest today Anton Troyer. He is professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University and a prolific, award-winning author. He has written 19 books, including Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask, Warrior Nation, A History of the Red Lake Ojibwe, and The Indian Wars, Battles, Bloodshed, and the Fight for Freedom on the American Frontier. He is also on the governing board of the Minnesota State Historical Society. And he is here today to talk about his book, The Assassination of Hole in the Day. Great to have you. Thanks for coming on to talk.
1: Thanks so much for bringing me on.
0: Yeah. So what inspired you to write this book?
1: You know, I've been fascinated about the chief named Hole in the Day since I was a child. Um, My father was fond of delving deep into local histories. And so as we drove around Bemidji and the Brainerd Lakes region, there were all of these places that just seemed to come to life um, through those stories. And, of course, the younger Hole in the Day had been assassinated in dramatic fashion And it was a bit of a murder mystery. And when I started grad school, I wanted to solve the mystery. And it ended up being the subject of my dissertation as I was trying to solve the mystery, but really use the lives of the chiefs hole in the day as kind of a window into how the nature of Ojibwe leadership changed, what was going on in this area during the height of the treaty period. And it was just so fascinating um, trying to figure all of that out. More recently, after the book came into publication, you know, the the book itself is a little different from what we're hoping to do with it now, um, where I was, you know, really doing a history work with the book, but we're hoping to make this into a movie. And I, I think the characters and so forth, just are perfect for
0: it. Oh, yeah, it would make a great movie. So the central figure in this story, he is known to the general population, uh, certainly to the English-speaking population, as Chief Day. That is an Anglicized translation, right?
1: Yeah, you know, in Ojibwe, Baganegijik, sometimes translated as hole in the sky or hole in the day, it's not really horribly erroneous. It's just, there's no way to capture the full meaning of one person's Ojibwe name, you know, and it's it's kind of by design that way. The names identify a little piece of a much bigger story that explains the spirituality behind a, a person. And, you know, hole-in-the-day received, the elder received that name as a very young person. Uh, and his son was really his, known as Gwywizance, or boy, but adopted his father's name because it had such notoriety and made quite a life for himself afterwards as well.
0: It's asking a lot, I know, to summarize the history of an entire people in just a few minutes. (laughs) But we're unfortunately saddled by time constraints, of course. And and I really want to cover the assassination and its aftermath in detail. Uh, but, But it's important to set the scene, of course. So would you mind setting the scene for us? What was the situation for the Ojibwe people in northern Minnesota in the 1860s?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack, and I'll do my best to give you the, you know, some short version um, background. For starters, I was just reading the Jennifer Rath book uh, called Origins, and it was it's really about the genetic, linguistic, and archaeological evidence for human origins here in the Americas, and those disciplines are converging. And coming to greater agreement that human beings have been here at least 30,000 years, some people believe even longer. And the DNA of the Ojibwe people have been here all of that time. But the emergence of the Ojibwe as a distinct group of people separate from their cousins, Ottawa, Potawatomi, and so forth, that's something that's much more recent. That probably happened just a couple of thousand years ago. As the Ojibwe were moving from a population center on the East Coast, on the Atlantic Ocean, westward, long before any kind of white settlement. And so, as a result, by the time you get to the time of the chief's hole in the day, the Ojibwe really had villages throughout the Great Lakes, from the Quebec border all the way through the Great Lakes and even spilling out, starting to spill out onto the plains and prairies. And the Ojibwe were not one people with one culture or one political entity. They were a scattering, you know, scattered groups of villages that each had their own distinct chiefs and even big differences in culture. And I think one of the things that made it very interesting during the time of the chief's hole in the day was that it was very difficult for anybody to command somebody else in Ojibwe culture. If somebody got too bossy or even got too much influence, chances are somebody else is moving down the river and saying, they're not my chief. Uh, And that was a cultural dynamic that had been ongoing within Ojibwe culture. Now, at the same time, you had various attempts at colonization, in this area, from the French, the British, and then, of course, the Americans. And colonization is pretty rough, but America, for its part, was determined to take the land from Native people, even though Native people did not want to give it away or sell it. And for any tribe, not just the Ojibwe, these were difficult times. If you were compliant and tried to be diplomatic like the Cherokee, you still got a trail of tears. If you fought like the Lakota, you know, or the Comanche, you still got confined to a reservation and lost most of your land. It didn't matter how decent you were, how kind you were, or how ferociously you defended yourself. The Americans were coming for everything. And those two dynamics collided as, the elder hole in the day was, he was actually not a chief by birth. Uh, and in Ojibwe culture, the civil chieftainships were usually a hereditary birthright. But one of the chiefs from Sandy Lake died after the Prairie Duchesne tree signing in 1825, and he died w- without any heirs. And the elder hole in the day and his brother were asked by the chief to like take care of the people. And although there weren't a lot of witnesses and nobody knows exactly what was meant by that, the elder hole in the day started to assert himself as a chief or leader in the absence of chief Curlyhead. And so some people in Sandy Lake really rallied around him and supported that. And others said, he's not my chief. And eventually the elder hole in the day left Sandy Lake and ended up moving kind of to the Western edge of Ojibwe country in central Minnesota to a couple of different locations. And those who really supported him followed him. And then there was nobody to argue about whether or not he was their chief. And this happened during the time of conflict between the Ojibwe and the Dakota. And so, the elder hole in the day was setting up new villages. And there were some big changes in Ojibwe leadership. So not only was he setting up new territory and space for the Ojibwe at the expense of the Dakota, but he was also one of the very first Ojibwe chiefs who said, I'm not just chief of a village, but an entire region. And you saw the, the beginnings of Ojibwe regional identities and you know left unimpeded maybe you would get a national identity or something or an effort to create one at some point but of course all that was interrupted by colonization Uh, so the conflicts did follow the elder hole in the day and his young son who was really just 19 years old when his father passed away and it's it's a fascinating story but the younger hole in the day grew up being groomed to take his father's position. And in sometimes horrible fashion, his father made him kill somebody when he was just 12 years old. And he was encouraged to be a dynamic warrior brought to various political events and functions. And it was not a typical Ojibwe childhood. When the elder hole in the day passed away, the younger in the day, age nineteen, went just two months later to one of the treaty signings, uh, which was happening up at Fond du Lac, and this is in 1847. And they had already been in negotiations for two days by the time he got there. And at age nineteen, which you know today we would think of that as a child or something almost, you know, here are all these hundreds of Ojibwe chiefs you know, leaders, warriors assembled. He walks in there and he tells the American treaty officials, well, my name's Bubba and if I say sell, you're going to get a sale. And if I say no, you're not going to get anything at all. And the rest of these people you've been talking to the past two days, they have nothing to say about it. And it was brash and bold and probably horribly offensive to all the other Ojibwe people there. And it's so interesting, as, as a 19-year-old, he already understood cultural dynamics in both the American and Ojibwe context. So in the Ojibwe context, if somebody does something offensive or outrageous, as a hole in the day dead, dead, well, then you ignored him, and you gave him enough rope to hang himself, so to speak, let him keep making a fool of himself. But in the American context, if somebody says something that you disagree with, you argue, you debate, you filibuster, you whatever, and so that he would say this and nobody would challenge him, well, it must be true. And so, at the treaty signing, and it was signed, Hole in the Day even signed on a separate page in big letters, you know, things like that. Um, it left a big impression on the American officials, and of course, he just offended a whole bunch of Ojibwe people, but he didn't care about that. They didn't live in his villages. And so this was how he conducted himself ever since. He intervened in treaties that had nothing to do with his area. He even offered in 1862 to negotiate on behalf of the US government when they wanted to get land from the Red Lakers. Um, And so that's the following year in 1863. When the old crossing treaty was being negotiated. And although he didn't get to do that, that he thought he could, or that it was a good idea to even say, suggest that was crazy. And by the time Hole in the Day gets assassinated, you know, the question isn't really who had motive. It's more like who did not have motive. Because there were so many people, native and non native, who had reasons to want him killed by the time he was.
0: He, he cut such an impressive figure. You, you're right. He was charismatic, and he dressed very distinctly, including carrying a Colt forty-five revolver, which he had received as a gift from President Franklin Pierce.
1: Right. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, you got to imagine during the U.S. Civil War, you know, they fought most of the Civil War with muskets. And at the very end of the Civil War, you had the first, like, repeating firearm technology that was being introduced with, you know, even the Spencer rifle, and then eventually the Gatlin gun and things like that. But that was all new technology. And it was first developed in pistols. And so Franklin Pierce gifted the younger Hole in the day, this Colt revolver, and he had the very first repeating revolver in the state of Minnesota. And it's a, it was a huge pistol too. it. You know, big long barrel, very accurate, lots of firepower. And it showed up all the time in everything he did. So he would wear it in his belt at treaty negotiations and other things for intimidation effect. He wore it when he met with, a number of U.S. presidents. Kind of hard to imagine somebody having a pistol from a group that might be considered hostile getting audience with the President of the United States, but he did. And um, it showed up like he, one time he was ambushed by Dakota Warriors on his way from St. Paul and he pulled out that pistol and started to shoot. Bam, 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 bam. And no one could even Understand how anyone could shoot that fast, because they had not seen the repeating revolver technology. And even though they were outnumbered, he and his bodyguard, who was his first cousin, killed all their assailants, and they got out of there without a scratch. It showed up again as he got into a barroom brawl with somebody in Old Crow Wing, pulled out his gun, shot him, and killed him in cold blood. You know, and uh, and so it was everywhere except one day, which is the day he was assassinated. And as he was accosted by the assassins, he reached for his revolver and realized it wasn't on him and said, ah, you caught me in a bad moment. I'm unarmed. And he was gunned down.
0: So walk us through that. If you don't mind, um, the the events leading up to his assassination on June 27th, 1868, uh, where was he going?
1: Yeah, so there was a lot leading up to Hole in the Day's assassination. So for starters, you know, as, as I mentioned just earlier in our conversation, he had upset a number of Ojibwe leaders. Um, and that, that was only the beginning of the offenses he caused there. In 1862, there was a lot going on in Minnesota. Um, some of the listeners may be more familiar with the U.S.-Dakota War, which started in 1862, and it was a horrible event for all uh, involved. Our best estimates are between four and 800 white civilians were killed. Thousands of Dakota were killed. The remaining Dakota were imprisoned, some at Fort Snelling. Um, others brought down to Iowa, and then eventually much of the population off to Nebraska, Others ran for it and escaped to Canada. Their descendants are still there today. Some sought refuge amongst Lakota communities. It was a diaspora of the Dakota population. And at the same time that that was going on, and there was a lot of backstory to the U.S.-Dakota war, of course, but there was a lot going on in Ojibwe country. And in the day was very upset that there were white Indian agents who were sent to all of the, major Ojibwe population centers who were stealing even the food and goods that were supposed to be given to the Ojibwe as partial payment for land sold in treaty negotiations. And they were, the white Indian agents were horribly corrupt. It was also a time when there was a shift in political dynamics amongst the Ojibwe. And in 1862, Hole of the Day sent runners to all kinds of other Ojibwe communities saying look there's a war going on between the Dakota and the and the whites and they're taking advantage of us they're going to take our young men and make them fight in the Union Army during the Civil War we need to rise up now and at both Leech Lake and Ottertail Lake Ojibwe people took him at his word they took white prisoners they burned down the Indian Agency at Ottertail, Ojibwe warriors came down to central Minnesota to the Brainerd Lakes region at Fort Ripley, um, prepared to make an attack. And here, holding the day, had taken no prisoners, had killed nobody, didn't start a war. He was letting everyone else take the risks, so that he could use that as leverage to negotiate with American officials. At the same time, there were some Ojibwe warriors from Mallax who came over to Fort Ripley and surrounded it, but facing out to protect it from would-be assailants. And in the middle of this standoff, everybody started pointing their figure, fingers at in the Day as the instigator. So this was all timed perfectly, because Commissioner Dole was the Commissioner of Indian Affairs and was in Minnesota. And various officials, from Commissioner Dole to army officials and so forth decided that they would just kill hole in the day or take him prisoner. Summoned him to a conference and told him to come alone, but they brought a hundred U.S. soldiers, you know, 25 vigilantes. They're all lined up, ready to pounce on hole in the day, who shows up with about a hundred loyal Ojibwe warriors of his own. They're facing each other. Captain Hall's hollering at him. "You Surrender now or we'll blow you to bits. And holding the day motions, and there's another hundred loyal Ojibwe warriors pop up behind the U.S. troops, outnumbering them two to one and surrounding them. And he said to Commissioner Dole, are you the smartest man that our great white father could send in a trying time like this? Because if you're the smartest man that our great white father has got, then I pity our great white father. <laughs> and so now... Chagrined, embarrassed, outmaneuvered, you know, Commissioner Dole says, I'm leaving, and delegates to Ashley Morrill and others to just get hole in the day what he wants, so he'll go away. And hole in the day dictates terms for a new treaty. The Indian agents are fired, the Ojibwe receive immediate payment of the goods that they were due. Um, The size of the Leech Lake Reservation was enlarged. He got everything he asked for and he was completely in charge. And everybody in the Indian business on behalf of the U.S. government was horribly upset with him. He was just too dang effective for them to run him over. But in the midst of all of that, there were all kinds of other things going on. There was a missionary who was himself native named John Johnson he thought that they were all going to die. And so he threw his kids into a canoe. This was happening in, you know, August in 1862. So summer, but it was actually quite cold. You know, we had the coming out of the mini ice age at that point in time. And so his kids get doused in cold water. Two of them died from exposure. He held hole in the day personally responsible for their deaths. And all of this was going on leading up to his assassination. But in addition to that, there had been another historical dynamic that was fascinating, and it's very hard sometimes for people to understand, even in the Ojibwe world. But throughout the French period, from the middle of the 1600s up through the middle of the 1700s, the French brought no women into the Western Great Lakes. They only sent men, and they said, cement our trade. Military and political alliances through marriage, which they did. And even today, about a third of Ojibwe people have French surnames, including most of the tribal leadership at places like Red Lake, Leech Lake, and Whiter. And you have just a huge population of people of mixed racial ancestry. The French then took the offspring from these marriages, and who would often look pretty brown, they would send the boys back to France for formal education, and they would come back to the Great Lakes, fluent in French, English, and Ojibwe, Catholic, and operating in European political and economic interests. They ran the fur trade. The girls, they kept as bargaining chips in arranged marriages to continue this kind of French patriarchy process of cementing relationships through marriage. And over time, eventually the French lose out in the French and Indian War. The British try to supplant French trade networks, and they end up hiring all of the same people. Well, it's only 25 years later, you get the American Revolution, and then the Americans are trying to supplant British trade networks, and they hire the very same people. So by the time you get to the hole in the days, you have this huge population of fur traders who are of mixed Native American and European ancestry who are trilingual, French, English, and Ojibwe. But even though many of them are quite brown, they don't identify, many of them do not identify as indigenous so much as European. And didn't believe that their race would be a barrier to their financial advancement. Well, that actually worked for quite a while. In fact, they negotiated on behalf of the U.S. government most of the treaties with Ojibwe people. in the day knew who they were and where their allegiances were, but he also understood that to advance his political objectives, he had to work with, not against, everybody, Although he wasn't afraid to make enemies, obviously. And so he told them all, Well, you look pretty brown to me. I'm putting you on the tribal roles, you are tribal citizens. And they were they would show up at these treaty signings and they would get paid as native citizens party to the treaty. They would get paid by the US government for their role as interpreters in negotiating the treaty. They would get paid often as officials acting on behalf of the US government to administer. U.S. government requests and hole in the day agreed to like line their pockets and it paid off for him like he murdered Joe Fairbanks in a barroom brawl, went to the Indian agent and said, I killed him. I do it again. I hate his guts, but I, I believe in you and I believe in the American system. And if you want me to surrender to your justice, then by all means, I'm happy to do that. And the Indian agent pats him on the back and says, I'm sure it was just a misunderstanding and self-defense. Go back to your family. Uh, And it was probably relevant in his success in negotiating a lot of other treaties and and situations. But eventually, Natives are running out of land to sell. And the treaty business is not going to go on forever. You have the Civil War coming to its conclusion, and this huge population of kind of mixed blood traders operating America's fur trade interests and treaty interests, well, they all of a sudden find out that there is a racial barrier to gainful employment for people of color in America, and they are not going to have the opportunity that they had enjoyed in the French, British, and early American periods without consideration to their race. So some of them want to make a move in the Indian business. And now Hole in the Day can see that they don't just want to profiteer off of treaties. They want his job leading in Native communities. And so he says, if you don't knock it off and quit your power mongering and efforts to displace me, I'm going to renegotiate our treaties to exclude the mixed bloods so that you cannot take over our communities. And he was actually getting into a carriage. And he would do this, by the way, when he wanted something to change, he would like, get a carriage, ride down to St. Paul, get on a train, take the train to Washington, D.C., demand an audience with the president of the United States, get an audience with the president of the United States and talk shop on treaties. So he was prepared to do that. And he said, I'm either going to Get a separate reservation for us um, at Long Prairie, or renegotiate the terms for the White Earth Treaty to exclude the mixed bloods. And he had other Native enemies too, because um, you know he had negotiated this treaty in 1867 that established the White Earth Reservation as a relocation destination for Ojibwe people. And then he came back home and he told his people, "Don't you dare move! I wrote terms into that treaty that." call for the building of a house for each of us, farm equipment, a sawmill, a grist mill, And I hate to tell this to you, there's no way to go back in time and have all of our lands exclusively to ourselves. We're going to have to change and adapt, and that means we're going to have to get into the farming business and into the logging business. But they're going to build us roads, houses, and if you move, they're never going to build us any of that. Well, he was right about all of that, but uh, one of the chiefs, White Clouds, packed up a couple of hundred people and they started heading off to White Earth. Hole in the Day pulls out his revolver and he says, "Don't you go. You're going to take away all of our leverage." And there's actually like this Wild West showdown where they're all pointing guns at each other, all these Native people and traders and everything else. And Hole in the Day eventually backs down, and White Cloud was saying, "You know, I'm tired of you." lining the pockets of white people and half-breeds. I'm tired of you drinking alcohol. I'm tired of your power mongering and I'm out of here. And he took off and them, they let him go. And he said, you're an idiot. And of course he was right. Cause everybody who moved to white earth never got any of it. The sawmill, the grist mill, the houses, any of it, but you know, there was all this upset and, you know, there were Ojibwe chiefs from White Earth, Red Lake, Leech Lake, and Mille Lacs who were so upset and wanted him dead. There were mixed blood traders who wanted him dead. There were missionaries who wanted him dead. There were white Indian agents who wanted him dead. And he was simply the most effective tribal leader of his time. He, uh, he was a jerk about it, um, but an effective one. And so as he got onto his carriage and made preparation to go to St. Paul to renegotiate terms for the White Earth Treaty, he was accosted by nearly a dozen assassins. They had, you know, rifles, shotgun, pistols. And that's when he reached for his pistol to defend himself. And he said, caught me in a bad moment. I'm unarmed. And he was gunned down and then stabbed and, killed in kind of dramatic and brutal fashion and it was a big mystery about who had done it the assassins themselves were native but there was always suspicion that someone else had hired them to do the deed and it just remained shrouded in mystery and I think honestly the identity of the assassins and the people who had hired them um, were revealed, you probably would have had reprisal killings maybe even going on for generations. Um, so it remained a mystery, and I, I had to do a lot of unpacking to kind of figure out who done it.
0: So where did this happen exactly? Do you, do you know the location?
1: We're working on a historical marker for the spot. It's not well marked, like for people who want to drive around and find this spot, but the ruts of the old wagon road that cut through the Crow Wing State Park are still visible in some places. And so we actually have a pretty good idea of exactly where that happened, even though it's not well marked for someone who wanted to go there, but eventually it will be.
0: So was there an investigation into this at all by anyone?
1: Well, yeah, there were, like the Indian agent did have to, you know, submit reports. There was A little bit of an investigation but there wasn't like a formal murder investigation and effort to bring charges you know it was kind of dismissed as Indians killing Indians kind of thing Um, but of course there were lots of people in the Indian office who had motive to protect the assassin and to make it go away because business could proceed as designed and desired Um, so Ultimately, you know, a hole in the day never got justice in the legal sense. And in the long run, I guess I can spill the beans for you here. There was a white Indian agent named Charles Ruffy and some of the mixed blood traders, Clement Bolio and others, who conspired and paid the assassins to do the deed. The people who paid off the assassins became the Indian agent at Whiter's, the allotment officer at Whiter's, the head of police at Whiter's. And essentially the assassination was an effective coup d'etat.
0: So the Indian agents, the military, were not interested in solving this, but was there anyone out there who was trying to figure it out?
1: Oh, yes. There were many native people who were trying to figure it out but the people who really you got to imagine like before hole in the day and through his life when the u.s government owed money to the ojibwe people the money went to tribal leaders who dispersed it amongst the population after hole in the day was killed the money went to a white indian agent who dispersed it to the people and often took a cut, and there were all kinds of shenanigans. So the, the financial power broker went from tribal chief to white Indian agent. And that was affected through Holden the day's assassination. Those people had every motive to have this thing be quiet and go away. And they did their best to suppress that. In fact, like, some of the other Bolio family members actually even controlled the newspapers at White Earth and things like that. you got to imagine how hard it was for everyday Ojibwe citizens who, throughout whole of the day's lifetime, lived in their villages, traveled where they wanted, harvested what and where they wanted, when and how they wanted to do it. All of a sudden, they got U.S. troops escorting them to a relocation center on the White Earth Reservation. They have this explosion in the white population. you got to imagine at the time of the Civil War, the U.S. You know, government is like a raw exporter of materials like cotton. And then all of a sudden you have the railroad boom, which means demand for iron ore. And where is there iron ore? But in Ojibwe spaces in Minnesota. There's the timber boom. And where are the most vast stands of white pine timber but Ojibwe communities in Minnesota? You know, you have the agricultural boom and America becomes the largest producer and exporter of agricultural products in the world, and we're still right up there. And where but Ojibwe country, you know, along the Red River Valley, do you find the greatest swath of Great A agricultural land in the entire region, you know? All of this puts tremendous pressure on native lands. And so the regular citizens are dealing with a flood of white settlement, allotment, being pushed into abject poverty, their chiefs being either killed or deposed, having to go to white Indian agents and deal with Indian police instead of their own justice systems. And they were just completely overwhelmed getting justice for hole in the day was an insurmountable task for them. Uh, They were, it was taking everything they had to get enough food to feed their kids.
0: His lifestyle was quite different than chiefs before him. You're right. As an example, instead of living in the village, he he built a house. Yeah. uh, Which was kind of separate from everyone else.
1: So, yes. In addition to Hole in the Day having offended all the parties that we've talked about in this conversation, he, this was a custom for the U.S. government to pay chiefs a little extra money at treaty signing time as a way to hopefully incentivize them to sign. Hole in the Day built a modern house, so instead of a wigwam, he actually had a little two-story house. Some people thought, well, it was at odds with Ojibwe cultural views where like Johan Cole wrote that traders came and piled up gifts with uh, one of the chiefs in Wisconsin who piled everything up and told his people, help yourself. And they take everything and And the chief said, look, I'm more impoverished than any of you. And I commend myself to your charity. And that was typical of Ojibwe leaders not to have more than anybody in their community. Hole in the day, obviously, was wired very differently. And he was trying to make an impression on non-Native people and was willing to be at odds with Ojibwe values in order to do so. He also claimed to be chief of multiple villages, even villages that already had their own chiefs. That was offensive to some people. Um, When he was negotiating the Writers Treaty, went to Washington, D.C., met a beautiful young white woman who wanted to write a paper and said, well, if you'll take the interview in my hotel room, then your request will be granted. And they had a, you know, I guess you would call a tryst or something like that, but she fell in love with him, hopped on an express train, caught him in Chicago. They got traveled together from Chicago to St. Paul, got married. He brought her up to central Minnesota and pushed her in the door to his Two bedroom home where his numerous Ojibwe wives were waiting. And she stayed. They had a child together. And that, too, to his people, is like, what is he doing? He's supposed to negotiate treaties? He's coming back with white women? You know, and I think that probably added to the upset. And he was just kind of rough around the edges sometimes, literally, not just a drinker, but in barroom brawls and killing people with his pistol in a barroom brawl and things like that. So, I think some people were like, just saw him as completely unchained. Some people maybe loved him for that, and some people hated him. Uh, even today, you know, he has numerous direct descendants today, and he's still revered as an effective and dynamic chief, but also sometimes reviled for doing things that were often seen as self serving.
0: He was a good negotiator, though. I mean, despite how polarizing a figure he was, he was still able to, to leverage his power to get annuities paid to his people.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he got more things done to, like, get people paid to look out for their economic interests during very difficult times um, than many other Ojibwe chiefs. And at the same time, he could be self-serving as well as people serving. He was brash and abrasive and you know like i don't know when he's telling commissioner dole are you the smartest man our great white father could send in a trying time like this his people are cheering and all the white people are mortified and offended and he was willing to do that and that's just part of his personality dynamics i i think there's an interesting picture of him where he is wearing a suit but he has the otter skin turban of an Ojibwe civil chief with feathers on top and feathers usually had to be earned in battle. And so he has you know numerous feathers on there um, earned from killing Dakota people in battles and things like that. He's got a blanket wrapped around him and he's holding a pipe. And in a way, this is not typical Ojibwe attire. So he's showing the, the, the otter skin turban is like he's saying I am your civil chief he's showing the war regalia of an Ojibwe warrior saying I'm the toughest of you all he's wearing a suit saying I am refined in the white man's custom he's got a blanket wrapped around him like he's saying I am a blanket Indian like the rest of you holding his pipe saying I'm Mr. Ceremony and he has what looks like a middle finger extended on one of his hands, the picture (laughs) like, like flipping off the rest of the world. And, you know, it may not have been his intent, but certainly um, I wouldn't have put it past him. But to me, like I would have been so fascinated to meet him or see him in action. Would I want to be, living in the same house as him or having him make decisions on behalf of me and my family. That's a whole different question. You know what I mean? Right. You know, he, he was effective when most people couldn't find a way to do it. And I i guess I admire his efficacy and just how bold and brash he was at the same time. I'd like to think that I would stand on higher principle and, be compassionate in times when he was, you know, abrasive. But um, who are we to say, you know, probably would have got run over being Mr. Nice Guy.
0: Right, right. So researching a book like this has its own unique challenges and, and rewards as well. Um, I assume your book offers a really fascinating perspective of this special history through the eyes of Ojibwe participants. And you use oral history, stories passed down from generation to generation, which really adds a depth to your book.
1: Yeah. You know, for starters, most of the books written about Native people have been written by non-Native people, most of whom haven't spent time in one of our places or talked to one of us. They're not going to have a lot of perspectives. And they're using for resources, you know, what did the white army officer write in his letter? Or what did the chaplain write in his journal? And again, you're just getting non-Native information to filter and try to imagine what did Native people think or how did they understand things? And so one of the things I'm trying to do, aside from like solve a murder mystery and tell a compelling story, is teach historians a different way to conduct the trade. So I think there's a lot of information we can learn even from indigenous languages, like our words for different kinds of chief, leader, place names, um, things like that can help inform the narrative. Sometimes we have oral histories that are really quite valid, like going back to 1862 when warriors from Mille Lacs come to Fort Ripley to surround and protect it. There's nothing in the classical historical documents that would answer the interesting question, which is why, but I was talking to Melvin Eagle. He's one of the um, drum chiefs from Malac. He passed away now, but he said, Oh, you want to know why? I'll tell you why. My grandfather was chief Megazin, and it was our family that rallied the warriors from brought them there. And here's what has been told to me through our family histories. And all of a sudden that oral history, wasn't just somebody whispering in someone's ear whispering in someone's ear coming out all distorted at the end but some really reliable information to help us understand a pivotal piece of history. And so I think the use of linguistic information, oral history and so forth can really get the archives and the Indians talking to each other.
0: Well, well this has been so awesome. Where can people get your book?
1: The Assassination of Hole in the Day is on Amazon, Bark Books, uh, anywhere good books are sold. And maybe someday we'll have a movie for you, too.
0: Very cool. H- have you been working on something? A, s- a screenplay?
1: We actually have a screenplay. And we're working on building the rest of our team and going after the production budget now.
0: You know, this would make an awesome television series as well. Like a limited series...
1: Well, at this point, The Dream is the feature film, and I would love to see some documentaries built around this, too. There's, It's a rich story, and there's lots to, lots to share.
0: Well, thanks again.
1: All right. My pleasure.
0: Again, I have been speaking to Anton Troyer. His book is called The Assassination of Hole in the Day. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. Until next time.